G'day, welcome along to another sermon from Good News Christian Church in Howrah, Tasmania, Australia. I'm Bernard Kane, I'm the pastor. Get in touch sometime at goodnewschristianchurch.org or why not come by one Sunday morning. For now, here's the sermon. You don't belong here. You don't deserve to be here. You aren't wanted here. We have no place for you here. You won't be safe here and you should leave now. Um, Over the past few weeks, uh, across New South Wales and Queensland especially, although in South Australia as well, I haven't followed that quite as closely, um, we've seen thousands of people evacuated from their homes at different times, some of them still at the present time, their very own homes. As one community after another has faced the threat of bushfires bearing down upon them, Um, their homes have become places that are no longer safe for them. Um, Unsafe in their own homes, places where the authorities have told them you have to leave. This place that for perhaps your entire life has been an emblem of belonging for you, uh, a symbol of who you are and where you are safe and how you fit, perhaps for generations. Maybe it was that for your parents as well and their parents before them. No, our fellow Australians have become literally homeless, some of them, And for more than a few, of course, that situation is actually going to remain in place for a very long time to come because they now face the task of rebuilding, don't they? Or relocating. And the years-long process, you know what this is, of then establishing a new home. And the bushfire season has only just begun. Now, curiously enough, this particular week uh, in... Uh, the book of Revelation in our series in Revelation that we're uh, working our way through, Revelation chapters 2 and 3, these letters to the seven churches. This particular week, we've arrived at Jesus' words to the church in Philadelphia, which you probably know is an American city, don't you? Did you know it was somewhere else before that? Uh, Philadelphia, uh, it was a city in the Roman province of Asia Minor uh, in the first century AD and that's what we're stepping into. It was established a little bit before that. And curiously enough, I want to say that the Philadelphians uh, would have been able to sympathise with our countrymen this week, not because of bushfires, but they too were victims, these Philadelphians, of repeated natural disasters that, yes, drove them from their homes destroyed their houses, turned their homes into places of fear and dread and doubt and not knowing. So have a listen to this. The youngest of the seven cities, uh, of the seven letters here in the book of Revelation, the youngest of the seven cities, Philadelphia, was nestled at the southern edge of a level, level river basin. It sat astraddle the main routes north and south and at the head of a large plain of lava deposit soil that was perfect for vineyards. The most important feature of the town, however, was its location almost atop the fault line responsible for the severe earthquake that shook Sardis in 17 AD. And that the first century Greek historian, as in the historian who lived in the first century, the contemporary of this letter, Strabo, he wrote, Philadelphia has not even its walls secure, but they are daily shaken and split in some degree. The people continually pay attention to earth tremors and plan their buildings with this factor in mind. And Strabo said in those days, 
That is why the actual town, Philadelphia, has few inhabitants, but the majority live as farmers in the countryside, as they have fertile land. But one is surprised even at the few, that they're so fond of the place when they have such insecure dwellings. Uh, In fact, it was so bad um, at one point that the Emperor Tiberius, so this is earlier in the first century than what we've been looking at, the Emperor Tiberius actually let them off paying taxes for five years so that they could re-establish and rebuild and, and put their lives back together after earthquake damage. So friends, it's a grim scene. But the way the historians describe it, time and again, a Philadelphian resident would have found themselves hurriedly grabbing their most precious possessions, if they could put them to, get them to hand, wondering whether their loved ones had got out and managed to get safe as things came tumbling down, would have fled to the open country, doubtless wondering, what am I going to find when I eventually go back home, if there is a home at all to go back to? Now, as we're going to see, um, actually, earthquake, um, or fire for that matter, wasn't the greatest threat to the Philadelphian church. It wasn't. But I guess I raise it by way of introduction because I think it gets us asking the right kind of question as we come to this passage, Uh, both for our passage, uh, but also for our nation at the present moment. When I have nowhere in this world to call home, uh, nowhere stable, nowhere safe, What words does Jesus have for me? Shall we pray as we come to Revelation chapter 3, verse 7? Let's pray. Our Father God in heaven, we are reminded this morning that even moments of personal or national crisis have been experienced and endured and addressed by your people and in your word down through the ages of history. You have been God to an alienated and suffering and struggling people and you've been their saviour. Father, may we learn this morning uh, for the benefit of not only our own souls but for the benefit of those around us and those dear to us. We know that all of the, the indicators predict that we face a future of in some ways, increasing natural disaster and the resultant social and cultural and personal and emotional strain that comes along with that, not to mention the spiritual strain, would you equip and prepare us, please, to face that future with firm faith in Christ and for the good of those around us? In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. No, it seems to me that the present uh, or pressing crisis of homelessness and rootlessness wasn't fundamentally brought about by the seismic circumstances in Philadelphia, but actually by the synagogue of Satan, as Jesus refers to it in chapter 3, verse 9. If we, uh, if you could have that passage open in front of you, I suspect it'll be helpful for you as on the way through. The implication is, I think, uh, from these uh, words, that the religious Jews of Philadelphia, those who followed an Old Testament Jewish religion, it's not a racial comment, it's a religious comment, uh, the religious Jews of Philadelphia had shut the doors, right, probably quite literally, on the Christians of Philadelphia, barring them from 
Jewish church, I suppose you might say, on the Saturday each week when the Jews met in the synagogues. Why? Well, because you Christians don't belong here. You have no place here. And not only are you not welcome in our synagogue, in this space, our Jewish church, uh, far more serious, you have no claim on our God. The God of the Bible, the God of our ancestors, the God that you claim that your Christ came to serve. So get out, right? So they say that you're a pack of frauds, you Christians. They say God doesn't love you. Christians. You're not with him. You don't belong with him. You don't have a home in his presence. Uh, But the truth of the matter, Revelation chapter 3, verse 9, big number 3, little number 9 in the text, I will make those, this is the words of Jesus, I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. So I suspect that's the kind of scene, all right? The setting for us as we come to this letter to Philadelphia, for the Christians in Philadelphia, with the synagogue door probably quite literally shut in their faces. The message from the Jews was clear. We're God's people and you're not. We're God's beloved and you're not. We have a home, we have a spiritual home right here and you'd better leave. And Jesus spoke to these Philadelphian Christians standing on the outside with three words. That's what we're going to focus on with the rest of our time uh, in this sermon. Three words, three assurances. He doesn't critique them, he doesn't criticise them, and especially if you're remembering back to the the last few weeks, Jesus usually has plenty of words of, of critique or criticism, doesn't he? Not of these guys, not of these folks. They weren't stuffing anything up, they weren't doing it all wrong, it, they, they didn't only have themselves to blame. No, no, sometimes you're just a victim, actually. Three words Jesus has. And firstly, it's this, I open the door for you. Firstly, you see, the religious Jews, they may shut you outside their synagogue door, but my door for you stands open. And I want you to know it's going to stay that way for you. Let's have a look. And let me ask you, actually, just as we read these words, before God, do you have this kind of approach, this kind of entry, this kind of welcome before the throne of heaven? It's quite a picture, I think. Revelation chapter 3, verse 7, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, these are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. In in your life, have you ever been shut out of spiritual things by mere men. And it usually is men, it's not always, sometimes it's women, but often it is. It's sort of the, uh, there's a whole bunch of reasons for that, we won't go into that now, but it usually is men, isn't it? Have you ever been shut out of spiritual things by mere men? Have you ever felt that mere men 
control the door to God's kingdom for you. They determine who gets access to Jesus and who doesn't, who is the beloved of the Lord and who isn't. And they won't let you in. Can we see this clearly here? Dare we? Can we see this clearly? No, those men don't control the door of heaven, do they? Now, there are a lot of people in this world, aren't there? Can you think of some who we sorely wish, I sorely wish, could discover this lovely truth for themselves and find healing and belonging and home with Christ through the gospel as they cling to these words. Verse 8, partway through, See, I have placed before you, says the risen Lord Jesus Christ, to an outcast community, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength. Maybe a reference to to their own feelings of inadequacy to prize that door open. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Now, broadening that out just a little bit, if we could, um, because yes, I think this word uh, has something to say to those who have been bruised by the church, Um, but could we just extrapolate it a little bit more broadly because Jesus is saying here there will be people in our lives or at least there may be people in our lives and there will be people in the world who think they command the doors of heaven, who think they hold the keys to the very kingdom of God. There may be people in our culture who seem to kind of hold the keys to spirituality, so to speak. There may be people in our culture and life and society who, in the opinion of the world around us, they appear the legitimate spiritual spokespersons of our day. Not necessarily Christian at all, but, you know, spiritual spokespersons who have the cultural approval and clout. When they pronounce their, I don't know, whatever it is, their quotable quotes or share their summer essential reading lists, but we can't even afford, let alone hope to get through on Where do they find the time for those summer reading lists, by the way? Anyway, that's a different story. Um, Not everything parading itself as holy and holistic is anything of the sort, Jesus is saying. Not everything. Not everything championing uh, spiritual wholeness and heritage has anything necessarily to nourish your souls at all. The Jews of Philadelphia, you see, they even had the ancient scriptures of God. They had a noble heritage, but they were a pack of imposters and commanded only the doors of Satan's very own synagogue. Is that a sobering thought? These are the words, verse 7, halfway through, these are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. Uh, That is the the spiritual door to to God's uh, kingdom who holds the key of David, uh, what he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you've kept my word and haven't denied my name. Have you kept his word? This is where it becomes the pointy end, isn't it? Do you know his name? There are lots of people claiming to be, to have something spiritual to say in the world. Are his words the words in your mind of the, the one who is holy and true? Are his words your essential summer reading? 
If they are, then see, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. But Jesus doesn't stop there. So that's the first word of assurance, the first comfort, the first word for these Christians in Philadelphia. But he doesn't stop. He's got a second word to Philadelphia. Uh, And if the first kind of sounds uh, protective for them, uh, defensive in a certain way and exclusive against the others, the second, I want to say, it speaks of a purpose, a uh, significance and I think even yet of an openness that might surprise some of those others. Um, It comes down to exactly how you read the second half or the last bit of verse 9 and so we're going to have a little look at that together because either, the end of verse 9, either it continues that kind of defensive posture or it could be promising even yet more deliverance than just deliverance of you. It could be uh, merely saying that uh, one day these victims will become vindicated, these Philadelphian Christians who are presently victims uh, and that's certainly true, or it could be going further to, to give them a dignified sense of purpose, even of mission there in Philadelphia, that they stand for something uh, that can even lead those liars in Philadelphia to find the love of the Lord still. Can we have a look together? So we'll pick it up from verse 8, which we've read a couple of times already, but we'll pick it up from there and take it in context. Jesus says, I know your deeds... See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. How do you take that last part of verse 9? Do they fall down at your feet uh, begrudgingly and in judgment at Christ's return and to their destruction or do they fall down having finally discovered that the riches of God's love weren't locked inside their synagogue at all but can be seen in the lives of these ones who Jesus really does love? Can I show you why I think it's actually the latter? I think it's the generous one. I think it's the optimistic kind of version that, yes, even those liars uh, might turn from their lives and find the love of Christ through your lives, O Philadelphian Christians. Could you turn with me, uh, just keep your finger in the Revelation passage, but turn back to Isaiah 60, which Joanne read for us a little bit before. Um, I think John, you see, is deliberately... uh, evoking the images and language, language drawing from the sort of storehouse of Isaiah 60, among other Old Testament passages, uh, images where the once enemies of God are now one into his kingdom. So turn with me there, have you got it there? Isaiah chapter 60, around about the middle of your Bibles. Uh, so if we just take in a few of those verses, we're not going to reread the entire passage, but we'll read a few of those verses. Say verse 11, could we have a look at Isaiah 60 verse 11? where we read, your gates will always stand open. It's a picture, by the way, of the, the, um, uh, the final saving work of God, which in Isaiah's day was looking forward to that day, the day which was inaugurated in Christ's coming, really, spiritually. But anyway, your gates will always stand open. They will never be shut 
day or night, so that people may bring you the wealth of the nations. Their kings led in triumphal procession. And yes, there's certainly a pointy end and a negative end to that there in verse 12, if we just keep reading verse 12, for the nation or kingdom that will not serve you, uh, serve the Lord, will perish, it will be utterly ruined. But I don't know, overall, so you look back up the passage a little bit more, I, I, I think it sounds optimistic overall with regard to the fate of the nation. Say verse 2, see, darkness covers the earth and thick darkness is over the peoples, right? So these bleak beginnings, but the Lord rises upon you and His glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Lift up your eyes and look about you. Or down in verse 14, the children of your oppressors. So the, 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 the offspring of the ones who put the boot into you, O God's people. The children of your oppressors will come bowing before you. There's that image. All who despise you will bow down at your feet and will call you the city of the Lord, Zion of the Holy One of Israel. See, could it be that when the haters and the self-righteous and the proud and the, the liars and the violent look upon Christ's people as they live, as we live in the presence of God, in the humble confidence of his love towards us in the gospel, that those haters and the liars and the enemies of God, that they might find their own religion to be hollow in the end and instead flee to the feet of those who, like our Lord, have no secure home perhaps aren't heeded and honoured and loved by all and yet they're loved by God. And so that verse in Revelation, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Such is the power of the lives of these Philadelphians in the hands of the saving Lord. Because finally the Christians have a hope of home. They have a hope of home that's quite unlike their uh, fellow Philadelphians. Uh, when they come face to face with their Lord, they'll have nothing to fear. When they come to the door of His house, well, they know what they'll find. When that door opens, they know who they're going to meet there on that day. And just notice the way, we're back in Revelation now, just notice the way Jesus emphasises in these closing verses, my God, my God, again and again. He wants these Christians to know He is my God and He will be yours. Do you realise that? Jesus says that you have a place, you have a home with my God. Uh, Revelation chapter 3, verse 10, let's look there together. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial. And I think there he's referring to the, uh, the day of Christ's return in judgment. The hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God 
and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God, and I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So going back to that opening question, when I have nowhere in this world to call home, nowhere stable, nowhere safe, what words does Jesus have for me? Well, do you hear that those beautiful words of promise to the Philadelphian Christians in verse 12, for instance? Philadelphian Christians whose homes were riddled with cracks and crumbling. Bits fell off from time to time, who knew what it was to flee and to run and to wonder what they'd come back to and and who would make it back alive. Revelation chapter 3, verse 12, look at the image that Jesus chooses for them. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again. Will they leave it? Do you hear the beauty of that verse for people who had the very doors of God's people shut in their faces, closed to them and locked? I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which is coming down out of heaven from my God and I will also write on them my new name says Jesus. Do you know that you belong to him? You who hold to him? Friends, hold on to what you have in Christ so that no one will take your crown. We worship one who in this world had no place to call home. We worship one who in this world found no safety among the synagogues, did he? They're the ones who put him to death. We worship one who in this world suffered at the hands of the strong and he bids you to hold on to him. I am coming soon. Let's pray together. Our loving God in heaven, our God, may the rich welcome that we receive in Christ Mark the men and women that we are in this world. In this world that leaves so many without a real or sure sense of a spiritual home, you are the one alone who can offer a lasting, spiritual, loving home into eternity. And how different it is to what so many of your children experience on this earth and encounter physically throughout their lives. Father, we continue to pray for those living in desperation and dread right now, Uh, indeed not just in the bushfires, perhaps some in this room or dear to us who live with quiet hostilities or difficulties that rob them of a sense of belonging even at home, whether spiritually or physically. God, would you please help and empower us to be of practical help where we may. And may we, would you empower us also to be people who point to the one who intends to welcome us home, whose front door stands wide open,
to us in the gospel and at the cost of his life. And Father, we do pray as well for those uh, in the path of uh, fires again. Father, may those living in fear and dread and grief this week find the generous embrace of Christ's loving God. For his sake we ask it. Amen.